What number is this, Chip? Episode 161. Monkeys 101 for the pilot episode. An exciting listener contest and more. Okay, no, I mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short. I'm You're listening to Zilch, a monkeys podcast. Happy 2021 and welcome back to Zilch, your monkeys podcast. I'm your host today, Sarah Clark. And if I can be forgiven for quoting a line from MASH, may she be a damn sight better than the old one and may the pandemic be done when she's over. We've got a new Monkeys 101 coming up exploring episode 10 of the TV show, which is really episode one, the pilot, Here Come the Monkeys. But first, my mistake is your potential gain in the form of a listener contest. We've all been anticipating 7A's reissue of Peter's solo album, Stranger Things Have Happened. It's a great album that sounds even better with the 7A treatment, and includes some great tracks that Peter recorded with James Lee Stanley. I've loved their two-man band music since their tour together in the late 90s, which was the first time I ever saw any Monkey Live, actually, and I'm thrilled that a new audience is going to get to hear some wonderful harmonies. I was so excited, in fact, that I accidentally ordered the CD twice. Now, I'm a hardcore Torquey, but it would be kind of selfish to hold on to a spare copy, knowing that 7A releases sell out more often than not. So here's how Zilch Nation is going to benefit from my absent-mindedness. Head over to Facebook and share this episode with your friends, or post in the comments with your favorite non-monkeys Peter Tork song, and why it's your favorite, or better yet, do both. Any share or comment will be entered into the drawing, so yes, that means you can vote twice. I'm recording this on January 2nd, and it should go out in the next few days, so the contest will close on Sunday, January 17th. At that time, I'll randomly pick a winner who will receive a brand new, still shrink-wrapped copy of Stranger Things Have Happened. And with that, Let's get on with the show. Normally, Ken rings the class bell, but he's off on a special zilch mission, so I'll get us started. Class! Class! It's Monkeys 101! Here at Zilch, a Monkeys podcast, we're big fans of education. But as Zilch Nation grows, there's also a growing number of fans who don't know their Frodus from their Freeble Energizer, or who've forgotten the departure time for last train to Clarksville. There are even people in this world who can't solve the equation nine times blue. Oh, but have no fear, because doctors Roseanne Welch and Sarah Clark are here to help with their new series, Monkeys 101. Their regular class sessions and symposiums on special topics will explore all things monkeys, from the deeper meanings of the TV show and music we all know and love, 
to the cultural impact of the monkeys from 1966 all the way to the present. We'll even explore the monkeys' connections to history then and now. Stay tuned for a fun, thoughtful romp through the world of the monkeys. And who knows? At the end of the episode, you just might be thinking about the monkeys in a different, deeper way. Welcome back, everybody, to Monkeys 101. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Sarah Clark. And I'm Dr. Roseanne Welch. Lovely to... uh, encounter y'all again uh today we are doing episode 10 of the monkeys here come the monkeys aka the pilot uh the monkeys land a sweet 16 gig that is soon thrown into jeopardy when the birthday girl falls for davy and that's more or less the entire plot um (laughs) written by paul mazursky and larry tucker directed by mike elliott um filming dates the two screen tests that were in the episode were shot on october 7th and 19th of 1965 and the episode itself was shot between november 13th and 23rd of 1965 it aired on november 14th of 1966 uh looking at the ratings we had an 18.5 rating and a 30.5 share that works out to about 10.1 million viewers and this episode won its time slot slot for the very first time against Gilligan's Island and Iron Horse. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that this is the 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 first time they won the time slot in the whole series um because I don't think it's, you know, one of their shining episodes, but it makes sense in the context of everything else because um the, you know, Clarksville just dropped out of the number 1 slot. They're getting a lot of press and it makes sense that it's kind of starting to pick up steam. Exactly. And imagine that was, you know, we're 10 episodes in. Nowadays, if you don't have steam in two episodes, you're canceled. (laughs) Yep. They actually had, I I was looking at this because I was looking at sort of the making of the pilot, which we're going to be talking about as much as the episode really today. Um, But um, it was picked up initially for a 32 episode order, which is, you know, bonkers. Nowadays, most seasons don't even go 32 episodes. I know. To me, that's so sad because that was, you know, back in the day that was and 32 is also less. If we go back to like George Burns and Gracie Allen, those guys literally did like 48 weeks a year and then they took a month off. And that was a normal vacation for rich people, but even for poor people in New York who couldn't live in the city, you know, in the heat. And so they would go off it to some of the various camps that you could go to and, you know, with your family. So it's crazy that they work that much. And now we're down to literally let's do 10 episodes a year and see how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we've discussed, this is the pilot episode of The Monkees, and um, Roseanne has, being, you know, the TV guru that she is, done uh, uh, dug up some things to share with us about pilots in general and this pilot in specific. True. I mean, the thing that what's fascinating about pilots, of course, is that we make many, many of them and very few ever get as you just said, the full order for a season or even the half season to get started. Um, It comes down to around for a normal broadcast year. And this is even with the beginnings of cable, but not quite with the world of streaming. You would you would hire writers to write about one hundred and twenty pilots. And when those were written, all the, the studios would check and read and make, you know, their determinations. And you would end up filming maybe half of them, maybe 60. Hmm. And then from that 60, probably 25 would get on the air. 
I mean, it's a real winnowing down thing. You get paid to write the pilot, but you get your money in sets of, okay, this much for the pilot, this much if it's greenlit, this much on the first day of production, and this much if it makes it to the air. So sometimes people talk about, ooh, the big money of such and such pilot. You're like, mm, but they don't get it unless it goes all the way through the process. Right. So it's kind of amazing. And we know from, of course, reading Andrew's book and many other things that this pilot almost didn't make it because it had terrible ratings the first time it was shown. And that makes sense because your, your general audience that they would get a focus group out of would be stay-at-home moms, which there were much more of back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I was actually reading Sandoval as well on this. Apparently, they literally um, gave out tickets to see this pilot at supermarkets. So, so yeah, not probably not exactly the target demographic. Exactly, exactly. I actually once – you'll get random calls in L.A. sometimes to see if you want to be a mm. member of a focus group. And they'll ask you if you're connected to the business. And, of course, you're supposed to say no, you know, yes, if you are. And I said no because I wanted to experience a focus group. Um, and this is back in the day. It was actually a, an episode of Cheers where they were introducing a new character. And they wanted to get an audience response to him. And now I've forgotten his name, but he was the new owner of the bar. And he was going to tangle with Kirstie uh, Alley. Kirstie Alley. Oh, man. Oh. I know what's his name. I have to go figure that out. Tip but I sat, through this, yeah, I sat through this screening and this discussion and people hated him and they didn't want to have him and all these things. And I thought, but don't you understand? The show needs conflict. They're not going to get rid of this character. They brought him on for this reason. And the people had no idea. So mm -hmm. if you went by their opinion, you would have canceled the character. And they just didn't understand what they were being asked to review. And that really fascinated me. Yeah. Interesting. So if those ladies, if those supermarket shopping ladies had their say, we would not have the monkeys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But fortunately, they re-edited the episode. And I think the most important thing of all, they put in those two screen tests of uh, Davy and Mike. And, you know, how can you watch those and not just like want to take those two home and, you know, feed Mike a solid meal and, you know. <laughs> You know, often when I show these episodes to my students, one of the things they notice is how skinny the guys are. Mm -hmm. It's very weird that they're considered good-looking men for their period, um, but that makes my kids laugh. They're like, "Oh, they're like little, they're little nothing, they're little stick men," which is yeah. funny. Yep. Um, yeah. What's What's interesting about um, you know all of that? Suddenly, why did they never show the auditions of Mickey and Peter? Well, uh, you know, those are available on YouTube, and I'll probably link them in the show notes, um, assuming we remember to do so. We're usually pretty good about that. Oh, but, yes. <laughs> um, I made a note for that because they're very fun. Yeah. They, they Mickey's and Peter's are interesting, but I do not think they make as compelling television as Davies and Mike's. Because Davy just has so much charisma, he grabs you. And like I say... Mike is just so, uh, you know, adorable is not a term one would normally associate with Michael Nesmith, but he's kind of adorable in that. <laughs> well, especially looking test. back now, we know him as the older sort of wizened guru gentleman, yeah. but that is this young boy who's like desperate for a job. Exactly. I mean, he flat out says, I hope I get this series. So, you, you know, um, but Mickey's and Peter's, they were both good. Mickey's, you can see why he got casted. Uh, the one that he's in, there's a sp spot where he's kind of talking to, I think it's Bob and with a couple of the other candidates. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's much more polished. He's much more Hollywood. Well, I mean, he's, you know, he you know, he, he did his first work on Sonogram, as we all know. So, <laughs> you know, it, he, um, 
he's very good and you see why they cast him but he's not as um you know it's not as unpredictable a um a audition because well he's a professional so you know that's very true he is performing already because he knows he has to and that's what one does in an audition and the other guys are just kind of sitting there it almost makes me feel sad for them because they don't understand how smart he is to draw focus because he does the bit of having mismatched shoes and that's not an accident no that that was yes yeah yeah and and he talks about he's the only one unless i'm forgetting something from davy's book which i haven't read in a long time he's the only one who really talks a lot about the audition process Mm -hmm. and he talks about there was like a half a dozen of these teen boys in a band series series that were up for casting pilots that season Mm -hmm. and he even talks about the monkeys specifically as the one that like wasn't being run by you know 45 year old guys who didn't get it that it was actually right. being run by other run young people and you know he 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 talks about at, from the get he really wanted to get this one if he could exactly exactly he knew and so he was totally performing which you're right is there's like a wall you get a sense of his personality which is why he got cast but you can also tell He's not giving you all of himself because he doesn't have to. He's giving you a persona, which is what he is selling. And the other guys don't know that. Now, I would say Davey does know that, obviously, because he's polished with his Broadway career. So he and he's been on TV. So he knows it as well. But he just is that sort of impish little charming guy. That yeah, is- I think it's more naturally, not that it's not naturally Mickey's personality, because Mickey is very much the Mickey you see on TV in his way as well. But I think Davey naturally is much closer to kind of the persona he was putting on in that audition. I've still got a lot more of him in that. Exactly. And as you mentioned, between their two autobiographies, it's really interesting to try to figure out, as we always say in history, the truth. Um, because part of Davy's book discusses how this was meant to be his show and all the others were cast to suit him. But when you watch, as you will put the link in there, there are episodes, there are moments when you see other men tested against, you know, and Mike is with this guy and Peter's with that guy. And it doesn't guaranteeably look like yeah. everyone against Davy, which is how you would do it if you were certain to this already was a cast person. Yeah, if you really were thinking of this as unnamed Davy Jones show as opposed to more of an ensemble, which, you know, mm-hmm. it was, it, you're right, it was the audition process was structured more like an ensemble show. Yep, exactly. So yeah. I've always found that very interesting. Although, uh, as we'll mention in the world of production, Ward Sylvester is given a producer credit and he was Davy's manager. Yes. So does that mean he finagled to make sure Davy got in it? Or does that mean it started as a Davy Jones project? And that, I don't know, at some point they were like, wait, just in case he doesn't work, let's make sure we have seen everyone we want and all. It's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'll grant it was probably, at least at the start, it may be was kind of a first among equals type situation. But true. And this brings us to something we've talked about offline, which was, it's shocking to me, we cannot find, I'm going to put an email into the Casting Association of America, we cannot find in Andrew's book or elsewhere, a listing of the casting people who worked on this, and the people who choose regulars, that's a huge, huge thing. Yeah, you know? and, and I mean, Andrew talks about it, and all the other books talk about it, like it was Bob and Bert who did all the casting, and I'm sure they made the final call, I'm sure, I mean, we know for a fact that they kind of did the final round of screen tests and, you know, and auditions and such, but 
there has to have been the casting director. They did not sit down with all 400 of the candidates or whatever it was. Exactly. Uh, you, you made that really good point to me. And I just, it, it occurred to me that, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost sort of an extension of the, the, the myth around the monkeys being a lot more improv than they really were the show. It's, mm-hmm. it's also sort of this, this ex- extended myth of this was completely and totally the brainchild of Bob and Bert and, you know, nobody. And, and we don't think about the writers. We don't think about the casting directors and all these other things. Exactly. All those other professionals, because you're right. It's probably whoever were the casting people at Screen Gems at the time. They mm-hmm. would be they would have their own casting department and they would have been in charge of all the pilots and different casting directors would have been assigned different pilots. And it's always a big crapshoot because you don't know if the show you've been assigned will be picked up and then you will continue with it. Um, and that's important. I, I double check the credits, too, and they don't list casting. It wasn't required back then, which right. is kind of sad. Nowadays, it is required. Um, so you always see who the casting people were and even the casting associates. And it's fun to watch older shows just like with writers and you watch the names go from staff writer to producer to creator of some other show. You'll watch casting assistants become directors and then, you know, they run whole departments. So it's kind of a pity we can't credit those people because obviously the whole magic of this show is the four men who were chosen. Yeah, yeah. And and that is well, I mean, I think that's why the pilot got picked up. It was A, the premise. You couldn't get much hotter than young rock band in the fall of nineteen sixty six. And yep. B, the casting, because frankly, it was not the strength of that episode. Even in the kind of improved version that finally made it to air, it was the chemistry, sort of the raw potential of that ensemble that made them see, hmm, maybe with some polish and hire a good director and make them do a whole lot of improv training, maybe we've got something here, you know? You're exactly right. It's the raw potential that can be seen in this episode. And of course, this is not a normal episode because it's written by two guys who never worked for the show again. And their ideas are used, but polished, as you just said, in ways that they themselves could not foresee. So yeah, yeah, pilots are very interesting. I always say when watching a new show, if it opens with its pilot, and some do and some don't, in this case, since this isn't an origin pilot, it didn't have to be the first episode. We don't have to be shown how these men came together to live in their apartment, which, you know, the Mary Tyler Moore show is an origin. It is her first day in town. We meet Phyllis. We find out Rhoda wanted the apartment. You have to see that episode first. You can't juggle it into the middle of the season. So this one doesn't have to be first, and therefore they could readjust what the show is about before it ever aired. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of our writers, I I know you've uh, done a lot of uh, digging into Mazursky and and Tucker, who, of course, are very well known in their own rights for things way more significant than the pilot of the monkeys. <laughs> exactly. And yet, you know, obviously in the niche world, that's why we care about them. But mm-hmm. of course, yeah, Paul Mazursky is going to go on to be, well, both of them, both Mazursky and Tucker, they came from the Danny Kay show. And I've actually pulled a link uh-huh. from, from that show, which is Danny Kay uh, dancing and singing with a young, I'm talking like 16 year old Liza Minnelli. Whoa. A really good clip to get a sense of the difference too, and that that is, what was on the air at the time the monkeys are going to premiere. Yeah. And just the juxtaposition of that is fascinating. But yeah, they came off the, the um, Danny Kay show and they were considered very hot young writers, which is funny because we think of Paul Mazursky as a, a wizened older gentleman of Hollywood. 
Um, but he was a young, you know, hot kid at the time. And they got hired by Burton Bob. So Burton Bob, as producers, had a say over who they hired to write the pilot. Um, and so that was cool. And post the monkeys, they went off and did their first big movie together, which was I Love You, Alice B. Toklas. Mm-hmm. And that has the very same hippie sentiment as the monkeys, um, which is pretty cool. And then they did Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, which I've always thought was a fascinatingly cool movie, which is about wife swapping. Right? Oh, yeah. Adam Wood and Elliot Gould. And it's, it's fascinating. Like, how did they get away with that in 1969 when the Hayes Code was just barely ending? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Natalie Wood is considered hip and young and she's coming off Rebel Without a Cause. And she is if she hadn't died where she did, she would have a kind of Susan Sarandon career where yeah. she would now be playing grandmothers and, and more stu- more people would know her name. But obviously, because she died young, um, we don't get to that point. Right. Um, but, but she's super hip and like fascinating. And what's crazy is at this point, Mazursky and Tucker separate and i have not found a good reason why often writers do it because they get tired of sharing money <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or they have arguments but in this case it, what appears to have happened is simply that mazursky stayed in films right he's going to do harry and tonto which right. I adore as well um and um and larry tucker is going to stay in television he's going to they're going to do a pilot a, a tv show based on bob carroll and ted and alice uh, it's only going to last a season but from that point on he's going to keep doing television work um, and and Paul is going to go into writing and directing movies, and that's going to be why his name is more well-known, because we have this stupid continued auteur theory where we think directors are more important. Right. Uh, so writer-directors are more important than straight writers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the run of their work, and we know briefly that, of course, there's a big lawsuit because they wanted more money. Right. Advertising and whatnot. Uh, and, and this is where, again, it's he said, he said, how much of what happens in this pilot is the brainchild of the writers and how much of it is the brainchild of the producers who never wrote anything. You're right. Mm. You're right. I had in the back of my head, but you're right. Bob didn't even write a script. I was thinking he might have at one point, but you're right. I mean, just direct. He doesn't write. Yeah. Yeah. Then they put it in the hands of Gerald Gardner and Dee Caruso, who write and take care of the freelance writers of every episode. Mm-hmm. So they usually creators at least write the pilot. Like Stephen Cannell, who I worked for many years ago, wrote the pilot of every show he ever did. And then the rest of it he left to a writing staff. Yeah. These guys didn't write anything. Yeah. I mean, one could argue that there was probably to an extent a rewrite in the editing room. But but yeah. True. No, yeah. But a lot of that's the editors then. Absolutely. <laughs> So it's an interesting, I mean, really, really interesting that, that whatever happened, they didn't keep them on the show and they didn't, Tucker and Mazursky didn't continue on the show. Um, and so the show changes, as we've seen with the previous episodes we've talked about. They are far different. They're much yeah. more sitcom, they're much more follow a plot all the way through. It's interesting. It is uh, because the episode that came just before this was The Chaperone. And the yep. prince, you know, the premise of that episode is not terribly different than the premise of this uh, this episode. Girl falls for Davy, dad doesn't approve, hijinks ensue. It, I mean, is is essentially the, 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 the rough outline of each, but Yet you lo- watch them back to back, which I kind of just did just a few weeks yeah. apart. And for being the same thing, they couldn't be more different. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that funny? I mean, they yeah. are like two different shows. And if you'd continued the monkeys along the lines of this pilot, what's funny is you'd almost get the variety show they wanted to have in the third season. 
Mm, a little yeah. tiny sketchy story surrounded by lots of hijinks and, and funny visuals and let's run through the thing with the monkey suits on and, and let's have the music in the middle that kind of proved. And, of course, Mazursky and Tucker came off of a variety show. Of course. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Very yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about Mazursky and Tucker's. I think we want to add about Mike Elliott, who directed. Also, the only time he directed a Monkeys episode. Yeah, and the only time he directed, the man has like one other credit. Yeah. Right. That's very interesting. I think he, yeah. It's not like he died young. I don't know if he left the business. I was researching yeah. him, and you just find nothing. Now, probably he was given to Bert and um, Bob in terms of he already, someone at Screen Gems knew him, wanted to give him a break didn't care as much about this pilot. They didn't need a polished person. They didn't think right. no idea. He just comes out of nowhere and it apparently is never seen again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't even really looked him up because I knew you were going to be talking about the kind of back end, you know, part of the card of the episode, but that's fascinating. Yeah. All yeah. that actually makes me wonder that maybe Bob had a slightly heavier hand in mm -hmm. it than, you know, maybe the credit implies, because he'd done a lot of, I can't remember how much directing he'd done at that time. I think he'd done a little, but he had de definitely done like assistant producer, associate producer type stuff. Right. So very well, it could have been just a name they needed and to, to make the studio happy. They were like, yeah, sure, whatever. And yeah. there you go. The guy didn't end up creating a career out of this, which is very fascinating. I mean, we know Frawley will be the one who creates a directing career out of this. So Elliot didn't have the touch that they wanted to continue. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And, um, you know, it's it's really fascinating to kind of think about this in the context of its time and, and, and where we, you know, where we sort of see this pilot starting from and kind of the things that that ensue. So uh, as always, I took a look at uh, what was going on in the news the week of uh, November 14th, 1966, which is when this episode aired. On the 14th, Muhammad Ali TKO's Cleveland Williams in three rounds for the heavyweight title. Huh. And yeah. is he named, he's been named Muhammad Ali by now or is he still Cassius I think it's Clay? been a couple of years, but he was listed Muhammad oh. Ali. I, I, yeah, I, I want to say that was a year or two before that. Very interesting, because, of course, we're going to have the Cassius Clay joke in the show at some point. Yeah, so. yeah. It must have just happened. I think we've already had the episode of the Cassius Clay joke. I'm trying to remember. I know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. anyway. <laughs> That's it's so sad. It's, it's the timey-wimey nature of us recording these. <laughs> yeah. On November 16th, Pirates outfielder Roberto Clemente is named National League MVP. Uh, on November 18th, the Roman Catholic bishops end the rule against eating meat on Fridays. <laughs> yeah, which makes sense. This was right after Vatican II. Am I remembering my dates yeah. right? Okay. Yes. I knew that was 60-something, so. Yeah. We're yeah. close. You know what? I don't know. It could be 68. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I'll have to look that up later. Uh, moving on to November 18th, the U.S. performs a nuclear test at the Nevada test site. Mm -hmm. And on November 28th, Cabaret opens at Broadhurst Theater in New York City for 1,166 performances. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And uh, unrelated recommendation, go watch the, the, the Cabaret uh, movie. I thought they did, get a, did a good job with that one. I agree. And now the interesting thing is, because I just mentioned Liza Minnelli, mm -hmm. she's not on Broadway, so she does the movie. So I don't right. have to go look up who played the character on Broadway. Yeah, interesting. So. Cool. Yeah. Moving on to the top five this week. Number five, Down Four, uh, Poor Side of Town by Johnny Rivers. Do, 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 ah, 
can you tell me how much you Number four, down two from last week, is Last Train to Clarksville by the Monkees. Do not despair. As I said, I'm a believer is coming up soon. Um, number three, up three, is Winchester Cathedral by the new Vaudeville Band. Winchester Cathedral, you're bringing me down. You stood and you watched that. Yeah, yeah. Good tune. Number two, up to Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. At least as long as I've been a Monkees fan. If not longer, I've been a Beach Boys fan. So Yes. Oh, truly, truly. Yeah, absolutely. And then another number one that kind of came out of nowhere. Up six, You Keep Me Hanging On by the Supremes. excellent one that's probably one of my favorite supreme songs now that i think of it so if you think about it how sad it is though that we have the supremes and the beach boys in the same top five with the monkeys and well we could go on forever about the rock and roll hall of fame but you know they, they deserve more attention than they get but anyway yeah you <laughs> know big, yeah, yeah I, I, my i i totally agree they should be in the hall of fame if we're gonna have a thing called the rock and roll hall of fame but i don't know in a, in a sort of way it's almost more appropriate that they're not in there and sort of a you know i wouldn't be a, a part of any club that would have me as a member kind of sense you know exactly hello groucho marks <laughs> exactly well i mean hey he's a man yeah. <laughs> uh moving on to our guest stars this episode uh rudy the manager is played by bing russell uh who is best known for playing the de- playing deputy clem foster in bonanza and also robert in the magnificent seven another excellent movie you haven't seen it well and what's fun about bing russell is of course you know whose dad he is well i was gonna get to that but yes he's <laughs> the father of kurt russell <laughs> who was too young at 15 but he would have since he'd done so much television as a child he would have been someone you would have interviewed for this show yeah yeah one would think so he was but, just a hair 15 was because i of course i researched him more because right. I, I love the whole six degrees of the monkeys mm-hmm. because of course he, Kurt Russell, will bring us to Goldie Hawn, who next year is going to be on Laughing. Right. And she and Kurt Russell got together doing a movie, but she was, tw- well, I shouldn't say they got together at this point. The first time they met was doing a movie. She was 21 and he was 16. Wow. I, I, she, I hadn't thought. Yeah. 
she would be older. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And she thought, well, he was too young, but she thought he was cool. And they yeah. met again like five years later when it didn't matter anymore. Exactly. And they stayed together all that time. Wow. Um, but I thought when I realized that, I was like, man, why didn't they interview Kurt Russell? Oh, by like two years, he was too young to be considered. Yeah, the- I mean, even even Davey was pushing it. I mean, he was 20 when he auditioned, but he looked, you know, 17, if that. So. <laughs> exactly. He'd been t- playing 12 on Broadway. So. Yeah. <laughs> so it is kind of fun. But yeah, I think it's really cool that we have this connection to another huge teen idol who had the luck, maybe, of not getting so tight cast. That, of course, he ends up doing Silkwood as a grown-up and all uh-huh. the other movies he's done. He was able to grow out of the teen cutie pie clean face look that really trapped Davey and, in to a small extent, even Mickey. Yeah, yeah. And he had, well, you know, he had an asset that Davey didn't have and Mickey only kind of had because his father had passed away at this point. Because mm-hmm. Bing Russell was just one of those, you know, in addition to those kind of landmark roles we know him for he was just kind of a journeyman character actor lots of westerns lots of police things uh he also did some disney live action movies which makes sense because that's where kurt russell got his start uh oh. he, he was in blackbeard's ghost the love bug and of course the computer wore tennis shoes <laughs> featuring his son as well <laughs> exactly exactly and that's you know a similar and i cannot believe my brain has just forgotten mm-hmm. opie's real name Oh, um, uh, Ron Howard. Howard, Yeah, Yeah, I thought I was crazy. Ron Howard. You know, that's exactly the story of the Ron Howard family between his father and his uncle. Right. All Uh the people in his family were journeymen performers in town. And he's the one who skyrocketed. But he wouldn't have gotten a start without a dad saying, hey, they need a kid on the show. Let's get you the part. Exactly. (laughs) Yep. Well, moving on to Vanessa, our love interest this episode was played by Robin Milan. Um, when she shot the pilot, she was actually in the middle of a recurring role on the Patty Duke show as Roz. <laughs> um, and she worked kind of on and off as a guest actress through the 60s and 70s. Uh, she shows up on Mission Impossible, The Partridge Family, Love American Style, Hawaii Five O, and Ryan's Hope, among other things. <laughs> uh, see, that's interesting. A lot of actors do that. They go from prime time to soaps. Mm-hmm. And once yep. you get in soaps, there's this ridiculously stupid idea that soaps are like a second class form of, of performance. And you kind of stay in soaps forever. And that's true of writers as well. I know several writers who went through prime time, ended up on a soap opera because that was the only gig they got. And they pretty much stayed in soaps forever. And I hate that because soaps are very intricate things, both to perform and to write. Yeah. I mean, they are, you know, uh, I mean, they for... 70 years or whatever longer if you're counting radio um have been doing the same things that we fawn over prestige tv for doing now as far as these intricate ongoing plots and you have to pay attention to everything you know exactly and they soaps you know not to not to ring their chain too much although they deserve it they're the first place on television where you were going to see gay characters the first place you were going to see interracial relationships and they could be and this is what annoys me they could be innovative because people who managed what was on television would say well that's just for women and who cares yeah (laughs) 
Okay, we better get down off our soapboxes. <laughs> We're gonna Sorry, go man. off on a rant. No, don't apologize. That's awesome. Um, and then confusingly, confusingly for me, as I was putting things together, Bing Russell does not play the character named Mister Russell. But <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. And this is father. That's played by Richard St. John. <laughs> That had to be a mess on set. Mr. Russell. I mean, no, that Mr. Russell. (laughs) Um, He has kind of, for a monkey's guest star standards, he actually kind of has a smaller um, list of IMD credits. He spent, uh, it was about 13 credits. Um, But a lot of them were in pretty well-known shows. Uh, Mr. Ed, Beverly Hillbillies, Perry Mason, and Petticoat Junction were uh, kind of the ones that popped out, so... Well, you have to think about the fact that he was at, at his age at that point. I mean, he's going to die in 1977. Right. Really only 10 years later. So yeah. he doesn't have that much time to have the rest of a, a big career. Yeah, fair enough. So, And then um, Jill is played by Jill Van Ness. Uh, the final version of the episode doesn't make this clear, but Jill is the girl who talks briefly to the boys at the volleyball game uh, about Vanessa's poor study habits. And she was supposed to be Rudy, the manager's daughter. They, they don't really, she works at the station. She works at the uh, record, record store. Yeah. It's, it's clearer in like the um, older version of the pilot that you can find on, uh, I think it's disc 10 of the Blu-ray set. And it may be on the DVD set as well. I can't remember that. Watch that as well. It's really fascinating viewing, watching the next, the two of them next to each other and seeing how they, you know, shifted things around. Um, yeah. And, uh, basically that is her only screen credit. I don't know if she was, you know, the, she was the joke of the friend of the producer or or what was going on there, but we, I know we don't get anything. And speaking of watching the two piles back to back, that's a brilliant idea for people who think about writing. I have people watch, um, I'm sure you're a Sherlock fan, aren't you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you get their DVD uh, of the pilot, you get the first pilot, which was only one hour long. Mm. And when the BBC saw how good it was, they said, you know what, you can have the whole hour and a half go ahead. And you can see how given the chance to flush something out, Stephen Moffat flushed it out. And there's even the technical change that it used to be when you had to have someone using their phone and looking at a text, you would have the camera take a picture of the stupid phone, which is a very static, ugly shot. And in the pilot, the one hour pilot, they do that in Sherlock. In the one and a half hour, they've come up with the innovation of let's have the words appear on the screen while we still see the actor's face. And that is now, I mean, that was kind of an invention at the time, but I mean, that's now kind of the standard way a lot of shows handle that, handle that person is looking at a text or an email kind of situation. Exactly. They literally birthed that idea in the difference between one pilot and the second. So studying two pilots, an unaired one and an aired one is really a fascinating way to learn what works and what doesn't. Yeah, very true. Very true. Moving on to the guard, played by Joe Higgins. This is actually the first of three ap- appearances on the Monkeys. Um, and he can be seen as uh, the masseur in Find the Monkeys. I think he's in that scene with the producers trying to find the monkeys. Yeah. And uh, and Max in The Prince and the Pauper. Mm-hmm. Um, he was active from 1961 to 1987. He had recurring roles on The Rifleman, Arrest and Trial, Green Acres, and Sigmund and the Sea, Mar- sea Monsters. Uh-huh. Uh, also guested on Bonanza, Twilight Zone, Flipper, I Dream of Jeannie, That Girl, and Dukes of Hazard. Dukes of Hazard. That's interesting because that's really a whole other era he moved into. Yeah, he plays a lot of, uh, well, I mean, he's a guard in this one, but he plays a lot of like police officers and stuff like that, so... 
the typecasting. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and then last but not least, uh, Mrs. Russell was played by June Whitley Taylor. Um, she did a lot of kind of smaller guest roles, uh, but was recurring on a lot of things. So, uh, you know, kind of from through the late forties to early eighties, she was on I Love Lucy, Dragnet, Mr. Ed, Marcus Welby, MD, Rockford Files, Incredible Hulk, and Alice. I, that's impressive. I'm going from I Love Lucy all the way through to Alice. Oh, yeah. Well, and her last credit is Life with Lucy, which was that one short uh, attempt of, you know, doing Lucy a fourth series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's an interesting comment on casting directors. Again, that's what casting directors will do when they run, when they work a show. And they usually work a few shows. They work from a production company. Once they like you, they sort of put you in their own little sort of stage group. And they'll try mm-hmm. to use you as often as possible which is, you know, that's what all actors hope for is to become one of the favorites of a casting director. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of these, you know, I don't I don't have the depth of knowledge to know how many of these were like Screen Gems shows and stuff. I know some of them mm-hmm. were, but it would be interesting if a lot of these people who pop up again and again on the monkeys are like, you know, kind of were part of sort of that, that Screen Gems go-to list. Exactly. Oh, I'm sure they were. Yeah. And then, ah, finally, on the casting situation, Mazursky and Tucker, of course, gave themselves roles as the TV interviewer and Dr. Lionel Tucker, respectively. (laughs) They're not stupid. You know, there's, well, there weren't residuals yet, but, you know, it's a way to get yourself known. And and writers of variety shows often were stand-up comics in some way or another and wanted their own to move their own career forward. So this way they could show themselves to an audience. And if they wanted to do a gig together, you know, it's a little bit like, um, Nichols. Ah, oh, yes. Lane May. It's similar to that. Those kinds of guys would be writers first, do their stage shows together, and then go on to write movies or whatever. And I wonder if Mazursky and Tucker were hoping to build their own career that way. Maybe. Maybe. That would make a lot of sense. Cool. Well, that's the cast. And um, I did want to get a little in a little, a few more kind of details about how the, the, the pilot came together, at least according to kind of the, the origin story of the Monkeys TV series. I found some interesting stuff in uh, Sandoval that I kind of wanted to go through. Um, basically, back in the early 60s, we've got uh, a, a, a young kind of hot-tempered, apparently, <laughs> assistant producer named Bob Rafelson, who met fortunately met uh, the son of a studio president named Bert <laughs> Schneider. Oh, and you mean networking matters? <laughs> networking matters. It is who you know. And the two of them decided they just didn't like the kinds of TV shows that were being made these days. So they were going to form a production company, Raybert Productions, that would produce shows that they thought would resonate with this new generation coming up called the Baby Boomers. Um, it's really interesting. It's almost It almost has, has sort of an indie feel to it, how it kind of came together, you know, because they're like, yeah. we're going to get outside the system, man. And, you know. Exactly, except they were entirely within the system while they did it. Exactly. They definitely <laughs> had they had one foot in both worlds, she said charitably. Yeah, um that is and fair. that is fair. Right. And, uh, you know, as we know, one of their first ideas was a show centered around four guys in a rock band, and it was not so Bob Brafelson says it was not based on the Beatles. It was based on his misadventures in a folk rock band that apparently toured Mexico in the late fifties. So, um, you know, I'm sure that's a little from column A and a little from column B. That's certainly Beatlemania is why the, uh, why the series got picked up. So exactly. And because Mazursky and Tucker didn't live Rafelson's life on the road with his little band, they are riffing on the Beatles. That's all they know. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's the, the, the scene with the darts and yeah. So yeah. 
and then uh, we talked a lot about the casting process already um, and uh, the first version of the pilot. Fortunately, the, the pilot did eventually sell and about thir- a third of the way through the first season with a number one single under their belts and lots of goodwill built up with audience says the pilot episode was finally released to an unsuspecting world. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our Man in the Street interview. It's a wet night tonight, but we're going to ask a few questions. Uh, Sir, may I ask you a question, please? Surely. Your name, please? Dr. Turner. Lionel B. Turner. I see. Dr. Turner, recently in our fair city, there have been many acts of violence committed right in the streets in full view of people like yourself. Disgusting. They have just stood by and watched people being brutally attacked. Deplorable. How do you feel about that, sir? Disgusting. It's each man's solemn duty to protect his fellow citizens. And if you saw a fight or a person being beaten taking place right here... I would involve myself physically. I would come in fist and feet flying. I would them I say, I'll tell you something right now. One rainy evening, a TV reporter uh, conducts a man-on-the-street interview with Dr. Lionel B. Turner regarding innocent bystanders ignoring violence in the streets. Uh, The doctor swears his duty to defend anyone in need, and of course they're soon interrupted by the monkeys just pretending to like beat up on Davy, who calls to Dr. Turner for help and he runs in terror and the doctor ends up helping an old lady across the street, I guess as sort of a means of escape, who then charges him 15 cents in return. And right now this is looking much more like a series about Dr. Turner than it is about the monkeys, but I digress. No, you're right. You're right. They focused on themselves. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Well, weird's one word for it. Yes. <laughs> Narcissistic is another. <sighs> yeah. And then uh, after the uh, credits, we are at Rudy's Record Rack, record store. Um, the Rudy, the manager, tells the foursome about a gig at the Riverdale Country Club. Uh, the owner, his old Marine buddy, Mr. Russell, is auditioning bands for his daughter Vanessa's Sweet Sixteen party. Uh, the monkeys are s- skeptical at first, but $150 kind of talks them into it, which, you know, I didn't go back and crunch numbers but as to what that would work out to. But it's got to be a couple grand i think nowadays yeah, yeah and think about it i mean people were probably well i know my mother's secretary back in the day was making like 70 bucks a month Ooh, and what's the monkey song where they talk about how much the banker makes uh mr webster yes there you go that's a that's an average salary for a week yeah. working in the bank so 150 yeah. bucks is pretty good yeah that's it you know, i mean you guys split it four ways but it's still pretty decent so yeah they gotta pay the rent that's all they care about exactly and that probably i'm sure that paid at least a couple months of rent so yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We don't get into that level of detail with Mr. Babbitt unless I'm just forgetting <laughs> it right now. But, you know, no, I don't remember every little bit of trivia about the monkeys. Just most yeah. of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you disappoint me. I thought you knew everything. and I was just riding your coattails. <laughs> More the other way around for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, we cut to the country club where we go into a different movie, a a, a different sitcom, which appears to be about Mr. Russell and the the travails of raising his daughter, Vanessa. (laughs) 
Um, they are dancing to Sven Hellstrom and the Swedish Rhythm Kings. And of course, Vanessa is not happy right now because, you know, polka. Um, <laughs> when the monkeys arrive, both Davy and Vanessa get stars in their eyes upon sight. Um, soon the guys are performing the song, I Want to Be Free. This is the fast version uh, that we see a few times, but I think it's mostly just featured in this one. While Davy fantasizes about him, Vanessa and the guys having fun in the park and at Kitty Land, which is an amusement park. I think it was down in San Diego, isn't it? Yes, because they filmed at Hotel Cor uh, Coronado, and that's in San Diego. So the hotel's down there, and I want to say the original beach house, which we actually see the interior of this, is down there. <laughs> right, which also we see in the audition. Yes, we do as well. So, uh, yes, the, 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 and, and, and you'll notice the interior of that house. They kept the exterior throughout the series, but that interior does not look, not look like a darn thing like the pad as we have come Never. to know it. But again, because then they hire set directors who make ideas, you know, set and yeah. art directors who come up with all that stuff. And a dumb little side note, I was checking IMB, IMDb, and oddly enough, there's a mistake. It says the Hotel Del Coronado is in Florida. Oops. Like, <laughs> I no, guess somebody just fly. Yeah, and it is a pain in the butt to get IMDB to correct stuff, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well anyway, they finish the song, Mr. Russell hires them, and of course Davy and Vanessa are going out. Um and then uh that the, we get to see a little bit of the, the them preparing for the next few dates. The, the Davy and Vanessa kiss on the front porch. It's very sweet and uh he brings her home at 1 in the morning. Good heavens. I mean and they're like 16 or 17 she's supposed to be. She's supposed to be well if she hasn't had her party yet, she might still be 15 and Davy I think we sort of decided he's probably 18 but just barely in exactly. the context of the show crazy yeah so because he he still has a guardian who could theoretically tell him to do stuff but he's out on his own so correct that's yeah. true uh, once in uh, once inside, Vanessa is confronted by her parents who complain about her neglecting her studies for her history final. Um, you know, good on them for caring about her grades. So, oh, I, I make a note in the book in my yep. feminist chapter that this is very odd for the time because still, what would be expected of a girl is to meet a good man who will provide for you and marry him. School was not a priority, so it's kind of cool that it is in this episode. Yeah, yeah. So they kind of get negative points for letting her stay out to one a.m., but positive points for for you know caring about her studies and she swears she'll pass her final but she flunks it um then we meet uh jill who explains to the boys that vanessa will get a makeup test but uh if she doesn't stop mooning over davy he may flunk it too and w could then have her party and their job canceled um and then davy of course kind of walks off to stroll morosely along the beach without a shirt on um to the more slower and better known rendition of i want to be free uh, Davy and Michael kind of talk about Davy's guilt about Vanessa flunking and wants to help her. And then Michael declares a board meeting. And I'm going to insert that audio here. Davy's right. We should help Vanessa. I hereby declare a board meeting. <laughs> Gentlemen, I have bad news. The firm of Vanessa Russell and Vanessa is failing rapidly. Good heavens. We'll be wiped out. Unless... We revitalize our firm by sending in our most brilliant man. Me, you must be joking. You're the only one qualified. Absolutely right, Chief. Good luck, Jones, and Godspeed. <laughs> Gentlemen, the meeting is adjourned. <laughs> Just like we need a new gavel. 
I love that. And then this is part of the whole flippy dippy. Let's look at funny things and change the costumes and just keeping your eyes focused. Exactly. It's one of the first. It, and unless you count the montage with uh, I want to be free, it's really kind of the first instance of monkey magic. Right. Yeah. So, but in any case, they may, they decide to help out. And that night, the guys disguise themselves as delivery men and sneak Vanessa out of the house in a big dresser drawer. Um, <laughs> Mr. Russell, the next morning, is complaining to Rudy about Vanessa's di- disappearance. Jill explains that the monkeys are only trying to help her pass her final. Um, the monkeys are then running through the beach in the park by and dramatizing historical events with a musical number at the beach, climaxing in the park with the second best reenactment of the era. Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton, dual known to pop culture. <laughs> oh, Davy, it's so quiet and peaceful here. Alexander Hamilton, you have accused me of treason. Therefore, I challenge you to this duel. Correct, Dan Burr, you are a blackout. Eight, nine, ten. Yes, it used to be the first best, and then there was the ad, the uh, commercial campaign, and now hmm. there's Lin Manuel Miranda. So. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's the commercial. It just was the guy with peanut butter. It wasn't really like the full on duel there, but True, yeah. it was just the answer. I will go. But Vanessa does indeed pass her makeup exam, uh, but unfortunately, her dad still refuses to let them in. But then. Using their uh, using their wiles, Vanessa and then Mrs. Russell start crying until Mr. Russell relents. <laughs> uh, he goes outside to question the guard about the monkeys, and then they hear the sound of the monkeys jumping over the wall. They catch him at them. They're in prisoner outfits, and <laughs> basically they just run around doing wacky scenes and hijinks for the next five minutes of what I timed <laughs> is about a 19-minute story total. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's a lot to give away the, story. Yeah, that that the uh cowboys um that the, the cowboy scene in the card room was cool was cute too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <that is. laughs> uh and then finally they make it, make it to the ballroom and Mr. Russell explains that they're invited. Uh but only one problem remains how to get the Swedish kings off the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention please. I regret to inform you that Norway has just declared war on Sweden. And all Swedish nationals are to report to their embassy. get the party rolling to the song let's dance on and everyone from the drunk at the bar dr turner and the old lady they're all dancing while the tv interview is trying in vain to conduct a man in the ballroom interview until he cracks up and dances along uh alas from the bandstand davy sees another girl and again sparks fly uh mickey mike and peter brandishing weapons as or balloons as weapons madly dash after davy and chase him out of the ballroom with the crowd in pursuit for no adequate explain reason <laughs> um, and then following this wearing costumes from I think son of the gypsy I, I should have looked to, to to look at the timing all this all this but I'm pretty sure that Peter's in his gypsy getup. Uh, yeah. In any case, Mickey and Peter introduced Davy and Mike's screen test, which frankly, I think had more to do with the second cut of the pilot selling than the actual episode itself. And I'm <laughs> going to insert the whole of those interview segments in here. 
Hi. Uh, tonight, we're a minute short as usual, so we're going to show you two spontaneous, unrehearsed uh, screen tests that were done of Mike and Davey before the monkeys, we started filming, before we like knew what was all going to happen. These are two screen tests that we did, and they're in black and white, so don't worry, the color is okay. What do you talk so much for? <laughs> hey, Davey, let me ask you one thing. Did you start off, like, are you a Kentucky Colonel's son? I mean, what, you know? No, my father's a fitter. He's an engineer, uh, he's a... An engineer on the railways, you know. He, How did you get into show business? How did that all start out? Oh, I used to act at school and whatnot, and uh, they said I should be an actor, but I wanted to be a jockey. Uh, How did you get started on that? Uh, well, I'll tell you about it. I just, you know, I, 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 I always used to watch it on the TV, you see, and I used to ride so many winners each week watching it on the television. My father said I, I ought to be a jockey. I see somebody coming around the back there is going to do me <laughs> in two minutes flat. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I... Um, I decided I wanted to be a jockey, so I left school when I was 14 and a half, went to be a jockey. I uh, practiced for about, a re well, rehearse, listen to me. I, uh, I practiced to be a jockey for about six, seven months, then I finally got on a horse and started to ride yeah. and thought this was the life. In the rain, you know, five o'clock in the morning and everything like that, so I... Uh, Did you make any money? Uh, yeah, but not, not riding I didn't because you have to serve an apprenticeship for five years. Hey, David, jockeys aren't big guys, are they? Tough no, anyway. uh, five, about 5'3". Five, but yeah. girls like that size, or what? Well, you know. You want well, trouble adjusting? Boots, uh, five. <laughs> in boots, I'm 5'3". Yeah, uh, no, I don't get tr have trouble adjusting. I kind of like tall girls, yeah. Uh, it's kind of groovy. But well, no, I didn't ask you that, David. <laughs> yeah. I asked you whether or not they like you. <laughs> you haven't got any hair on your face. No, there's a funny bit. I went into hospital, had my appendix out, you see. And I go into the hospital, and she says, okay, shaving time. All right, I said, David, I said, I don't... Right, I said, 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 I Hey, let me no. do the song and dance you do. Song and dance you do? Cartwheel something. Do something, quick. A song and... You must be joking. No, I'm not. What, do you, want, what do you want me to do? I I'll dance one of your little quick things. <laughs> hey, baby, you want to know something? Honestly, hold it for a second. What? I really think you should have been a joking. <laughs> It's a pseudonym. How did you have to pick Blessing? Well, uh, why are you asking me that? It's weird. Get on something else. <laughs> Get on something else by yourself. Okay. Um, tell me the Colonel Meadows story. No, uh, because that's a very dumb story. However, I will tell you about the time that I was in the Air Force and I jumped over a General's airplane. One time, I was in the Air Force. I don't believe that. And no, I turned over the General's airplane. That's about the time over. Yeah, that's about the time I was in the general chair. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, man. That's all the story. Uh, Mike, let me ask you something. Seriously. Why do you do this kind of business? What's that? Playing the music. Well, I mean, you know, why it? do they call that a light? I don't know. That's just where it's at. Well, how'd you get to it? How long ago? About two years. You just came to it two years ago? Mm -hmm. what, what before that? I was a failure. Yeah, but did you work at that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I just didn't do anything. I was a failure. Um, do you think you're a goof? Do you? 
No. Well, see, it depends on what you think. You're a goof? Yeah. No. Well, okay, see, then that's where it's at. If you think I'm a goof, man, I'm a goof. You know, what I think is what I am, right? But I don't think I'm a goof. I don't think you're a goof. Right. Okay. I think I'm out of work. <laughs> I hope I get this serious. But a uh, goof? No, I'm not. Let me ask you this. Do you have any ego hang-ups? Yeah. A lot of ego hang-ups. I've got a few ego hangers. And you got any ego hang-ups with me right yeah, now? Listen, wait a minute. I mean, really, if you're really tight about me sitting in the chair, they don't because I really want to see what's in there. Because when I go home, I'm going to say, hey, I'm the farmer's daughter. You know what's in that drawer? That's going to be a guess. You may be the only one who's ever been in that drawer, Mike. Oh, no, because there's stuff in it. Mike, come back here, will you? Wait a minute. Oh, wow! Are you ready for this? Okay, go ahead. Do the butler bit. No, I was going to do it. Mike, let me ask you something. Do you think you can play another part? A part oh, of what, the guy? Oh, what is that? What do you want me to be? Strong and silent? Yeah, be strong and silent. Hey, well, well I'll be a girl. <laughs> Mike, they're the same thing. Well, I mean, that's your hang-up, man. <laughs> Not mine. I mean, I know where it's at. Were you ever a strong and silent girl before? <laughs> you have rested. So. Oh, fun. Very yeah. cute. Anything you want to add about the, the, the interview segments? I mean, it's such an innovative idea. I mean, it just seems par for the course by this point in the airing of the show, because we've had like three or four, you know, minute short segments. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, it, 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 you, you really get an insight into how both of these people tick. Yes. I think that's very true. And that's what they wanted. As they said, it was that the people could, here's the funny thing, because we're such deep fans. What do you mean you can't tell them apart? It's obvious. And yet it's not, because if you think about it, Peter and Davey are around the same height, same kind of haircut. They both have kind of cute little faces, sort of cheruby faces. And Mike and Mickey are both over around six feet tall. Mm -hmm. They both have dark hair. They've got the same build, really. I mean, Mickey's hair isn't standing out now and the whole fro thing that's going to come up. Right. So if you have no – like, and I know, I know this because sometimes I will do in a class, I want to give students a concept about other jobs that writers will um, get into when they're executive producers. And, of course, most of my students have not really seen the monkeys. So I will show the auditions and I will ask them to pick which of the men they see should be part of the team because they mm-hmm. don't know who really made it. And they often don't pick all four of them correctly. Interesting. Yeah, so, and we, we kind of skipped over uh, Peter's audition tape. We, we talked a lot about at Mickey's when we, were, when we were talking earlier about the auditions. And honestly, there's a reason for it. It's kind of the weakest of the four. I mean, he's kind of doing his sort of um, Harpo Marx mime shtick, which, you know, is good. But a little of that goes a long way. True, true. He is, and he's the least experienced. I mean, Mike is the least experienced as an actor and, and, and stage guy, really. But... He has a very distinct personality, and Peter, in many ways, was still discovering who he was, and that shows. Yeah, that is that is a very good way to put it, yeah. The songs in the episode this week were um, I Want to Be Free and Let's Dance On. We've already talked about I Want to Be Free, I believe, in the context of success story. But mm-hmm. uh, Let's Dance On, the credits are... Uh, let's see. The version that was probably used was version two, uh, by Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart. Recorded July 5th of 66, July 9th of 66, and July 16th of 66. Uh, Mickey on lead and backing vocal. Tommy Boyce, Ron Hicklin, and Peter Tork on backing vocals. Wayne Irwin, guitar, backing vocal. Jerry McGee and Louis Shelton on guitar. Larry Taylor, Taylor on bass. Billy Lewis on drums. Gene Estes, Maracas and Tambourine. Bobby 
heart, organ, and backing vo- vocal. <laughs> so there you go. That's uh, that's uh, let's dance on, and that I believe is everything we have for the pilot. Is there anything else we want to add? No, only I was just going to briefly say um, two things. Something quickly about costumes, which is it's really fun to watch the first season, especially this episode, the first season versus the second, because not only do we see the, the boys change attire, obviously, but something as simple as the fact that Vanessa's wearing a babushka. She's in that era of hair and popped to the second season, and you've got the truly hippied out girls going on. So just that that one moment in American history flips visually for us in this show. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, even between 55, 65 when they shot this pilot and 66, because mm-hmm. it basically aired a year after it was shot, give or take. Right. And even in that like one year time frame, fashion had changed so much. I mean, look at look at how the girls were dressed in the episode prior to this uh, chaperone and then look at the next episode. And just, you know, it's just amazing how quickly that's all changed over. Exactly. And then in terms of themes, the two things that struck me is it's obvious the show overall is always about anti-authority, which is pretty cute. I mean, it's Uh something that the audience was ready to hear. Right. So I think that's obvious. But I think they cross. And this is because it's written by men. Yes. And we don't have we don't have a female staff writer yet. Um, But when we get Travis Silverman. But what's happening here is we have this cross message of there's some feminism, as I said, because we think the woman should be good at school. It's her mother who tells her that, not Mm -hmm. her father. Her teacher is a female. Jill, the working, has a job. As I've noted in all the episodes, every woman we meet has a job. Nobody's a cheerleader and stupid. So that's all sort of pro-feminist. But then weirdly enough, for the sake of comedy, they undermine their message because both in the romp with Vanessa when they're chasing each other in Kitty Land, it ends with her essentially lassoing him and chaining him and laughing maniacally yeah. at the fact that she stole him like he shouldn't want to be with her when he started the darn relationship. Uh-huh. So that's kind of an anti-feminist move, right? And then what you just said, the two women revert back to crying in order to get what they want instead of using their brain to argue the father into it. Yeah. So for the sake of a joke, and that happens often, they go for the cheap joke and they don't realize that the cheap joke is so old fashioned, it's undermining the other thing they're actually saying. So I go 50-50 on whether this is pro or con in terms of feminism. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Um, exactly. it's, but, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, they definitely, that is something that they definitely get better on as things roll along. So, yeah. Exactly. And then finally, I think when we were talking about the watching both the old pilot and the new one, what is lost is in the original unaired pilot, they do this cute thing where they mimic silent film and they have title cards. Yeah, I mean, there's still a few bits of that in the in the final cut. But yeah, there was a lot more of it in the uh, in the, uh, you know, kind of rough draft unaired pilot version. Yeah. And that's so. a stylistic thing that's really quite fun. And who knows if they would have continued or not. But I always thought it was charming. And I think it's a bit of a loss. But hey, that's yeah. their choice. Yeah, that, that was. <laughs> and we see bits of it, it over the years. It's one of those things that sort of fades out as, as, as time rolls on. But, you know, we get bits of it. But yeah, definitely not as much so as it was kind of originally envisioned. So exactly. And then the other thing I wanted to to, to note is we see it, it, much less um, high concept than what Roseanne was just talking about. We actually see the first appearance of a car that the monkeys drive, though it is not the monkey mobile. It's kind of this red and yellow painted woody. And um, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Before they thought, well, it's a pilot. They're not going to pay someone to design a car they'll never use again. Exactly. No, it makes complete sense that they just take some uh, station wagon they had out back and paint it wacky colors. And I mean, it sort of fits the certainly the guys as they're depicted in the pilot. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so I think that's, you know, it's fun. Again, that's what's so fun about a pilot. You see the seeds of what can be and then. You see what it became. Oh, yeah. I'm, I mean, pilots in general, I suspect, are kind of picked up based on sort of the potential that people see in it, I would think. And this is very much true in this one. The episode itself, I mean, I tried not to get too snarky, but it is not one of their highlights if you just look at the episode itself in a vacuum without the context. But you can still see, like, the chemistry of the actors and kind of the this concept that you could take in a whole lot of different directions and a whole lot of different and tell a whole lot of different stories with it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And they did. Yeah. And, and so they did. And in fact, there's another one coming up next week. Uh, next time we will be discussing episode 11 of the monkeys monkeys a la carte, uh, the monkeys monkey with a mobster's plot to take over a string of West coast restaurants, uh, writers, Gardner and Caruso, as well as Bernie Orenstein director, James Frawley. And, uh, we'll be talking about that more. And I'm sure that Roseanne has some things to say about this one. <laughs> and with all of them, as you do. I mean, this is the fun of this. We come from it at, at both sides, um, but we both kind of love the show, and that's what counts. Yeah, very true. Okay, well then, uh, I think we will see you all next time with Monkeys 101. Yay! Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye. Dr. Roseanne Welch is a Mickey girl and the author of Why the Monkeys Matter, Teenagers, Television, and American Pop Culture. After a career of writing for television shows like Touched by an Angel, Picket Fences, and Beverly Hills 90210, Roseanne shifted gears and went into education. She now writes on film and television studies and teaches in the screenwriting program at Stevens College. Dr. Sarah Clark is an April Conquest and proud of it. When not podcasting here at Zilch, a monkey's podcast, or writing at her blog, Fandom Lenses, her not-terribly-secret identity, she can be found leading a university library in the Philadelphia area. Sarah is convinced that her utter inability to understand Head when she was 11 sparked the intellectual curiosity that led her into academia. If only she'd known the guys themselves didn't understand Head either. Roseanne and I really enjoy doing Monkeys 101, and we appreciate all the great feedback we get from Zilch Nation about these episodes. We plan to get more out to you in 2021, so stay tuned. That's about it for this week, but Ken, Christine, Roseanne, Jeff, I, Craig, and all the rest of the gang want to thank you for your continued support of this show. We've got lots of fun stuff planned for 2021, and who knows? Maybe we'll get to go to concerts again. Wouldn't that be something? Oh, and one more thing. Listen all the way to the end. A couple weeks ago on Facebook, Jason Turner asked which episode had featured Ghosty Wills and the Podfather's unique take on Shades of Grey. It turned into a whole conversation, and so Ken asked me to throw it in at the end of the episode. Some things are true classics, after all. Thanks at all, as always, for listening, and we'll be back before you know it with another episode of Zilch, a Monkeys podcast. And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit Monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. 
Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the Monkees or any of their members past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Bird. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around. Duck season. Rabbit season. Duck season. Rabbit season. Wabbit season. Duck season. Wabbit season. Duck season. When the world and I were young, just yesterday, life was such a simple game a child could play. It was easier than to tell right from wrong, easy than to tell weak from strong. When a duck should stand and fight Or just go along But today there is no day or night Today there is no dark or light Today there is no black or white Only shades of gray I remember when the answer seemed so clear We had never lived without or tasted fear It was easy then to tell the truth from lies Spelling out from compromise who to love and who to hate The foolish from the wise But today there is no day or night Today there is no dark or light Today there is no black or white Only shades of gray we shades of gray. Is he crying? <laughs>